Hello, I want to welcome everyone back to uh, another episode of uh, Parlay with Comedian Kevin Wolf. Tonight, we have a very, very special guest uh, uh, with us tonight. Uh, we have Dr. John Mendez. Uh, many of you know him for his activism and uh, bringing communities together. He's also uh, served as pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church for well over 30 years, uh, came there in 1983, and since that time, uh, he has really lit the world on fire. He has been uh, a part of numerous uh, achievements. Uh, he was the first African-American pastor to address the general board of the All-African Conference of Churches in Nairobi, Kenya in 1987. Uh, he was a major, major uh, figure in a part of the Daryl Hunt Project. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to talk more about that. Originally from uh, New York, we're also going to get into that and some of the things he's got doing now. He uh, got his undergraduate from Shaw University, uh, proud alum uh, of Shaw. And so without further ado, I don't want to waste everyone's time. We're going to get into the conversation. Uh, special guest on here tonight is the Reverend John Mendez. How's it going? Uh, doing good. How about yourself? And thank you for the uh, invitation. I, I had to. I had to. Uh, and we're going to jump into uh, quite a few things. And so what I like to do is really start from the beginning and kind of tell your story. So where are you originally from? I was born and reared in uh, Harlem, New York, in South Bronx. I was born in Sinham Hospital, which was around 124th Street. Um, uh, not far from the Apollo. And um, uh, family moved, relocated to South Bronx. And I actually lived on a street called Fail Street, F-A-I-L-E. And um, I actually hated living on that street because of the implication of the name. Um, so I found myself always struggling against the very street that I lived on. What was New York like during that time? The way I look at it, um, you had two potentials. One was you could um, allow all of the negative stuff to impact you in such a way that it sends you spiraling down a road of self-destruction. Harlem was the cultural mecca of, of, of America. And um, when I got really uh, connected and involved in the cultural life of Harlem, um, it was so rich and nurturing that it would bring the best in you out of you. So um, Harlem, and uh, more so than even uh, South Bronx, was a, um, a kind of um, um, enigma in the sense that um, you had the potential and the temptation to go one way or the other. And I went both. So kind of explain what you mean by you went both ways and how you ended up going the way that you ultimately chose. Yeah. And I have to be kind of psychoanalytical here because um, 
being a part of an oppressed community, we live with trauma all the time. Historical trauma that um, goes all the way back to slavery, to uh, reconstruction, lynching, and legal apartheid. And that's true in most of our families. We got stories that go all the way back. I knew uh, certain persons who were slaves in my family through conversations of two or three generations later, like my mother and um, my great aunt. Um, all of them had stories of existential trauma as it related to slavery. And um, as I recently uh, learned, including lynching, my mother was a native of uh, Magnolia, Arkansas and Texarkana, Texas. So she grew up in that kind of uh, triad. And uh, when she left uh, Arkansas, she never looked back in 50 years um, due to the violence, I'm sure, the threats, as well as to the lack of economic and um, uh, cultural opportunities. And um, I remember a lot of those stories, hearing those stories. And um, what I know now is that um, it represented trauma. So that in my lifetime, every time we experience some kind of trauma, whether it's the police killing another uh, Black person uh, uh, or uh, some major racist um, uh, experience uh, happens, it ignites uh, what the original traumas were, were all about. And um, so that you never really heal and, and, and then trauma becomes unconscious. And my traumatic experiences as a um, kid in third grade, um, second and third grade, um, traumatized me. And, and I did not deal with it until I was um, uh, probably in my 50s or 60s um, as such. And um, some ministers and myself were sitting down in McDonald's, started talking about our first experiences with racism. And all four or five of us just broke down and started crying because we had never dealt with it. And I didn't realize uh, then how much the trauma was still with us. So existential trauma, when it becomes unconscious, you don't think about it, you don't talk about it, but it does um, have a lot to do in controlling your behavior in terms of what, what, what you do. Do you think that looking at that existential trauma, do you think that trauma uh, impacted your activism and getting involved in that? Or do you think that was later? No, it, it was it was later um, because what happened to me in second and third grade was so devastating um, that uh, by the time I was in the fourth grade um, and fifth grade is when I started actually gangbanging. 
um, because um, it was so traumatic that, and I was the kind of kid that was very um, active. I believed I was smart, self-confident, and that experience almost shattered all of that. But what was key were the interventions. Uh, so when we talk about um, uh, how I got out of it, it was certain interventions that made a difference. Had it not been for those interventions, I'm sure um, I would have either self-destructed or I would have been in prison somewhere, maybe getting out now. So what was, uh, what was one or two of those interventions that happened that ultimately got you on a different path? Well, I have to go back to what happened in third grade. Yeah, definitely um, share that story. Yeah. I was, like I said, I was always an active kid. I loved school. Um, our parents and most black parents um, at that time believed that education was the way out of the hood, the way out of the ghetto, the way out of oppression. And um, all of our families uh, were, all of our families encouraged us to get a good education. Don't be ashamed to be smart and uh, uh, strive to be your best and don't settle for second place. And we would drill with that. My mother would, in fact, uh, make me uh, memorize many of the poems of Langston Hughes, James Weldon Johnson, County Cullen, and uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. These were really powerful, optimistic poems uh, that, that really uh, bring, make you feel good about yourself, but also um, encourage you to uh, fulfill your potential because you had one. Um, dream big, etc. Well, I carried that uh, with me through school then, first, second, third, Great. I was always in the most advanced classes. Um, one, one, I think it was, two, two, and then three, one. And this is where the tragedy happened. In my second grade, um, and I didn't realize this till I actually started going through psychotherapy, and my therapist and I uh, worked through it. But I was asked to go to the bathroom to get the other guys out of the bathroom and bring them to class. I did. When I got to the bathroom, nobody was there. And so on my, on my way back to class, I noticed the guidance counselor and my teacher was standing in the middle of the room waiting for me. And I could not figure out why, but I was accused of fighting. Um, I, I did not have a fight and I, I didn't know who I was even supposed to beat up. So they kicked me out of school and said I couldn't come back unless I brought my mother with me. Well, the next morning, my mother was coming back to school with me and you know how black mothers are, you know, boy, you tell me if you fought, you tell me now, don't let me go to that school and look like a fool. I assured her that I did not fight. So she said, well, you're gonna stand up for yourself and you die for the truth. She stepped back, 
pushed me forward and said, now defend yourself, which I did. And I kept asking the teacher, who did I beat up? Where is the kid? Produce him. And she couldn't. And this went on and on and on for a while. And finally, finally, the guidance counselor said, well, he just made a liar out of you. Let's, you know, and she dismissed the meeting, sent me back to class. And um, that was the end of it. But I remember feeling so empowered that I had stood up for myself and defended myself and was victorious. Mother was proud of me. I was proud of myself. What I did not think about, and this came out in therapy, the possibility that uh, was probably the most talked about um, event in the school. And you know how teachers get into the lounge and probably started talking about it. And I'm of the opinion and feeling that uh, that's when, and when I got from, um, to the third grade, that the teacher was going to teach me a lesson. You know, number one, you're a black boy, can't dream big, and you have no business talking back to white folk like that. So they had to put me in my place. The last day of class in the third grade, I'm in 3-1 now, teacher writes on the blackboard, all the kids going to either 4-1 or 4-2. My name was not among them. So I'm wondering, you know, why my name is not up there. And then she said, tells, she turns and tells uh, the class, we got one going to four nine. Who do you think that is? Nobody could even imagine somebody jumping from three one to four nine. And she writes my name on the board. I was humiliated. I was so, uh, embarrassed and hurt and angry. That whole summer, nobody could do anything with me. And then I um, vowed to myself, I had enough ego strength to not go to that class. So when school started again in September, I ran away. Uh, for two weeks, I refused to go to that class. Finally, the school negotiated with me that if I stayed another week, they would move me to a more advanced fourth grade class. And they did, they moved me to fourth three. And the, I knew immediately teacher did not like that. Some kid coming from four nine into her elitist four three class, I stayed in the hallway more than I stayed in the class. And then finally, um, I broke. I put a grown people cussing on that teacher. I went off all of the narcissistic rage in me. I dumped it on her. And of course, now I'm kicked out of school. I remember sitting in the hallway. I was so angry and crying that I decided I wasn't coming back to school. And um, I was going to join the gangs and all of that. So now my hope and my dreams are all shattered. But there was something miraculous that happened. A teacher, a beautiful, tall African-American teacher, 
left her class, came over to where I was, picked me up and said, if nobody else will take you, I will take you. She took me into a class. I finished fourth grade in her class, but I would not do anything to upset uh, that beautiful black woman. And she promoted me to five, three. That was the first intervention that really saved my life. Um, she um, took me into her class and um, it was a class I could feel good about as far as being in. And then she promoted me to 5-3 and I just went you know, straight. I felt good because now I was back on track. And um, uh, so that was, that was important. The second thing, uh, intervention, was um, Fred Shuttlesworth, uh, the uh, popular civil rights uh, leader with Dr. King. And um, I went to church one Sunday, and Dr. King was supposed to preach, but he couldn't make it. And he sent Fred Shuttlesworth as a, as a uh, proxy uh, for him. And um, he was awesome. I never will forget that. He was so awesome. And by then, the damage had been done. So I did some gang banging. I was fighting a lot uh, because of that trauma. You know, that anger was still there. But the Sunday I heard uh, Shuttlesworth preach, and he was talking about the civil rights movement, what he had been through, and I con was convicted. I, I developed a crisis of conscience to the point where I said, hey, look, I can't do this anymore. I can't terrorize my community anymore. I'm going to get involved with the civil rights uh, movement and, um, and take on the drug uh, culture in my community. And I did with the help of my um, uh, teacher, uh, English teacher in high school who um, had me writing letters. And I was writing, and then one, um, one morning, uh, the police came and they didn't come to help me. They came after me, representing the drug cultures and all that. And they were threatening and whatnot. I called people in the community, they came over. Um, and supported, they got, police got scared and left. Um, but I knew I had uh, made some impact and what have you. But um, so once I got involved, I met Shuttlesworth and it, um, that level of conversion got me close to my church, third intervention. And um, church members saw a lot in me, I had to do a Sunday school review one particular Sunday morning. And um, there was a guy who was in seminary would come back sometimes to help me. But what he would do was teach me philosophy because he was taking philosophy and uh, theology. So I started learning about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all of that. I'm the only kid running through the neighborhood now talking about Aristotle and uh, Socrates. Um, and um, uh, that uh, uh, took me to another level. 
And 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 then I went, took my gangbanging buddies to hear Dr. King preach one night at St. John's Cathedral. And on the way back on the subway, that was so profound. He was so profound. Um, uh, he he arrested all of us, and we, and I knew we had to do something. And um, so on the way back, we vowed we would make a difference in our community. That's when I started writing letters and dealing with the drug culture and 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 what have you um i got closer to my pastor who was an awesome guy he was the um pastor not only one of the largest churches in the united states mount olivet was a beautiful church but uh more importantly he was the president of the national uh, baptist congress of christian education which was the wing of the national baptist convention and um, he was one of the most respected pastors, not only in Harlem and New York, but across the country. He um, had a lot of power, but he was old, you know, at the time. But I got close to him. I used to read the newspaper uh, to him when he was blind. I would clean his house, his library. And uh, that's where I learned about the books I needed to uh, have. And um, uh, he gave me a compliment one Sunday and I sat on his steps the next morning waiting for him to come out. And uh, when he came out, he said, hi, John, I didn't know you were out here. I said, no, Dr. Maxwell, I thought I didn't want to disturb you. I just wanted to wait for you when you came out to say thank you. I had no idea that thank you would pay for my college education and he used to take me with him and his wife uh, to different conventions, the national convention, and uh, where I met a lot of different preachers who uh, catered to me because I was close to O'Clay Maxwell. And um, when I started going to the conventions and whatnot, and they were powerful, particularly the New York State Convention and Congress, I had an opportunity to speak and I had gotten so much um, uh, speaking experience and um, um, looking at certain models by listening to some of the greatest orators and preachers literally in the country. Uh, Mount Olivet's pulpit um, always had somebody who was like from Gardner Taylor, Sandy Ray, uh, George Lawrence, Tim Mitchell, these were the many of the civil rights leaders nationally as well as um and of course martin king you know would come you know periodically to harlem to our church as well as um brooklyn and other places so i got involved in the culture in harlem and learned a lot about like for instance um james baldwin i would bump into him all the time at frank's restaurant that used to be on 125th Street. Um, I became good friends with Sam Austin, who became like a spiritual mentor to me, who was connected to everybody. And one night, um, uh, what's his name? Um, um, Ozzie Davis, who was a member of his church, called me to go with them to, uh, to meet Malcolm X, which we did. And um, I remember meeting Muhammad Ali and 
at um, Teresa Hotel, um, standing out there clowning after he had won the championship from uh, Sonny Liston. But Harlem was rich like that. And I remember names. I remember Fidel Castro when he came uh, to uh, Harlem. He didn't want to stay anywhere else except in Harlem. Years, learn years later, I learned why. But Harlem was rich like that. And those interventions encouraged me and made me believe that I could still overcome. And because in a sense, in the midst of it was this pathos, this pain and the suffering, but I'm dealing with folk who had experienced that, but also got through it. So it helped me to get through it and believe in myself again. And um, that's when, you know, I'm now ready. Um, I'm getting involved in different um, issues and I'm fighting back. So when I got to, um, college, I was the only student that came with my own library. And a lot of the guys used to laugh at me, but they always respected me. And I became um, a freshman class president. And by the time I graduated, I became, I was the um, student government president. Um, and in between that, that was in my senior year, in between my freshman year and my um, uh, uh, senior year, uh, I, I got involved with SNCC at the time, um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And a lot of those guys took, um, sort of took me under their wings. But what we also had was Malcolm X Liberation University that really I became involved with. It gave me really uh, international perspective on things. And I found myself involved in um, um, the anti-apartheid um, struggle in South Africa, and mm -hmm. as well as we supported the liberation struggles for independence that was going on in Southern Africa. Um, most of Africa had been decolonized except Southern Africa. So Zimbabwe, which was Rhodesia, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, um, and Namibia were still waiting, struggling, fighting violently for their independence. I got involved in that. That was a whole nother education. And, um, and I got my school involved in different uh, movements. Um, when I hooked up with Ben Chavis, we became friends in Oxford. March from uh, Oxford to Raleigh demonstrating uh, for 40 miles. Governor uh -huh. refused to come out and meet with us. And um, let me say it this way. They went back and burned Oxford down. <laughs> now, I want to talk about that r real quick. I want to spend just a little yeah. bit of time on that because uh, what happened in Oxford, North Carolina, ended up becoming a book and eventually a movie, Blood Sign My Name. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, I remember you saying this, your name is actually on the permit uh, for the... Yeah. Um, and what's his name? Um, 
included me in that book. Tim um, Mike, yeah, yep. uh, Mr. Tyson, uh, Dr. Tyson. And um, after we started talking, he wished he had talked to me earlier because there was so much other information that never made it into the book that I was a part of. I'm in the uh, movie um, as, as well. But um, that was my first involvement in, 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 in protests in North Carolina um, after I got here. And, um, and there was so much that followed literally um, after that. Uh, but my association, for instance, with Snake Cleve Sellers, who was one of the organizers of Snake, um, literally took me under his wings. And I learned a lot uh, from him um, and then later Stokely Carmichael and, and so many others um, that I was affiliated with. Uh, but, um, now, yeah. I, I want to, you, you mentioned uh, uh, being a part of SNCC, and I want to fast forward just a little bit to uh, you leave Shaw and... <laughs> I want to fast forward to coming to Winston-Salem in the okay. early 80s, you know, uh, different city from, from Raleigh in that, that area, uh, the Wendell area, uh, different city. And when you come to Winston, what are you essentially walking into? Yeah, let me just back up a minute because um, you mentioned I was in uh, Wendell where I started pastoring a church. I got back into the ministry. Um, and um, I met Howard Thurman at the time. He's pivotal because we talked, I listened to him. I was organizing a union at that time at Duke University. And um, Thurman was coming to the, uh, the university, to the divinity school to lecture for the next five days. But that Sunday, um, he was the speaker for a Martin Luther King celebration before it became a national holiday. And I was like crazy. The faculty thought I should meet him. They arranged for me to meet him to get his support for the union drive. We did, we met, we talked, and he agreed to support us. And I was so dumb. I was saying like, you know, this guy doesn't impress me and da, 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 until he spoke that night. It was the most awesome thing I ever experienced in a speaker. So the next five days I left my job to go hear Thurman. And um, I even told my supervisor, you can fire me, but I'm going to hear Thurman. The last day we connected, we talked, I dumped on him. And he encouraged me to go back to seminary, sharpen my tools. And he said I had a lot to uh, offer. Um, and that's what I did. I went back to seminary to the school I didn't think I want to go to, the last place on earth I wanted to go, but it was the best thing for me. Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary before it got taken over by the conservatives. And now it's nothing but a, a glorified Sunday school. But when I went, they had a very strong faculty. And um, without getting into all those details, 
Um, I started pastoring, I guess, in my last year. And I stayed there six years in um, uh, Wendell. And then I came to Winston-Salem in 19, December of 1983. Um, and I'm in the middle of my honeymoon, enjoying it. Everybody thought I was a nice guy, a good preacher and all of that, until the Daryl Hunt thing kicked off. And um, I had to get involved. And, but also, there went my good name, you know. Um, and and the rest was history. It was on then. But um, I knew they had framed him. They had lied on him, destroyed evidence, and threatened witnesses, and manipulated witnesses, and what have you. But I didn't care about that. I just knew we had to fight to keep him from being killed in, 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 in capital, because it was a capital case. And um, when they, um, I was on my way to, to the court when I learned that they found him, all white jury found him guilty. And I said, I cannot sit back and do nothing, not with all the experiences and my level of consciousness, you know, I had to get involved even though I knew the price. And we did. And the minister's conference raised the first $10,000 to get him a, um, uh, a, a good appeals lawyer. And we won. He got a second trial, jury again, who found him guilty less than um, an hour. And that almost broke me. Uh, um, but I went back and started reading existentialism, the Black um, and um, existentialism. Can you still hear me? Yeah, I got you. Okay. I was going to ask you something. What was yeah. the, can you kind of just give an idea of what was involved with the Daryl Hunt case? Like, what was that sort of about? Yeah, a um, young a uh, white female uh, uh, editor who worked for the uh, one of the papers here at that time was brutally killed. It was a horrific uh, murder. And um, she was stabbed many times and raped, you know, and all of that. It was a horrible, horrible uh, uh, crime, death. And But I knew, well, let me back up a minute. Larry Little, was the one that knew Daryl and um, former organizer of the Black Panthers. He was on the city council um, and was the activist here before I got here. And I knew Larry before I got here and uh, there were a number of activists here and I just joined in with them. I'm a Johnny Connor lately. I don't know anybody and I'm not trying to act like I'm anybody's leader, but I don't, you know, um, integrated with them and uh, we all worked together. And uh, when that happened, um, um, I became the, uh, actually the um, chairperson of the Daryl Hunt Legal Defense Fund. And we stayed with it. Um, and we were hated, we were cussed out. I got letters, go back to Africa and all kind of crazy stuff. 
you know, in the community. But after 19 years, Daryl was finally exonerated. And most recently, as late as today, um, what's his name, Brother Long, another guy that we were fighting for walked out of prison today. Um, and um, he had served almost 40 something years for a crime that he had not done. So, I mean, all, I realize all of us can be subjected to that kind of, of injustice. And, um, and once Darrell was exonerated, he hit the ground lifting up others like him. And, um, and we were close. Um, and, uh, but, you know, that those were some of the things that um, we did. But when I got here, I was, you know, well-liked guy, but um, after I got involved with that, I was just another one of those uh, crazy radicals. So when I, what I'm hearing is, whether it was for hearing Fred Shuttlesworth, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., meeting Malcolm X, being a part of that culture uh, of Harlem, and that, that black culture and the activism, you've had a lot of great interventions in your life that uh, help shape and mold, um, help shape and mold you along to what along the way. Uh, I want to ask you something. So when you, I want to go back just a little bit, if you don't mind talking about, yeah. because I think it's important to talk about your time at Duke and how you helped to organize, and this was before coming to Winston, right? That's correct. So yeah. if you don't mind, kind of talk about that organizing piece and, and what it was at, at Duke University at that time. Yeah, it was a, a, a small group of us, and um, I don't mind you know, saying that, that we had been um, studying Marx and um, a whole lot of other leftists, particularly coming off of um, the whole struggle for independence in Africa. Um, and it had a lot of impact here. Um, Howard Fuller, um, who was then uh, known as Owusu Sadoki, was one of the uh, strong leaders in this country and a primary leader um, in the country, respected by all Pan-Africanists and by then, I was in the Pan-African movement um, and um, we were studying people like Nkrumah, Amilcar Cabral uh, uh, of Guinea-Bissau. All the uh, leaders in Africa had impact on us as well as Fidel uh, Castro. Um, and uh, all the lies this country told on Fidel and so many others, and what uh, Cuba was like, you know, just a bunch of lies and whatnot. But but anyway, um, being a part of that and being well aware of all of that, um, we we there was well. Let me put it this way: the black struggle had split, and there were two lines and two a sense of destinations within the African-American uh, movement. And we were going at it, <laughs> you know, I mean, back and forth. It was a really difficult time. 
But who was uh, the Biden. split with? Who was the split with? The split was between nationalists like Stokely and Imamu Baraka and all of them at that time and the Pan-African Marxists, you know, as such. Um, and um, the uh, Sixth Pan-African Conference um, had emerged um, in around 73, 74, and I went to it in um, uh, Tanzania. Dar es Salaam then was the uh, capital. And um, it was an awesome uh, conference, even though there was a big split. I got to hear Sekou Toure speak um, and so many other beautiful people. Fidel spoke and um, uh, I thought I had died and gone to uh, social heaven, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, but it was powerful and empowering. I met Julius Nayere at the time, who's one of the, in my estimation, one of the greatest presidents of all of Africa, you know, um, and Kenneth Kaunda, who actually came to our church. Um, these were the guys that took the beating while we were opposing, and the world was opposing apartheid in South Africa. Um, and um, it was a lot to that, but that had a big influence on me. So I left, I was in seminary in Atlanta at the um, Interdenominational Theological Center, predominantly black seminary, but I wasn't ready for it. I was too radical and um, was moving in another direction. But all of that in some sense collapsed. And that's why, Thurman and all of them were so important to me as again an intervention to move me in the right direction. So, um, but anyway, when I, I came back to North Carolina uh, to work at Duke, I was a patient care assistant, about as low as you can get next to the uh, uh, sanitation workers you know, within the hospital and what have you. Had my little cute blue jacket and white pants, um, trained as a nurse uh, for several months and then let go, started working. First 60 days, again, honeymoon, beloved and light. Day 61, we standing outside, passing out flyers. We getting ready to organize a union. White folk pissed, but black folk ready. And what I learned then was that um, we were unknown. We coming out of grad school and other schools and whatnot, it's a small group of us. Um, and um, we took over the um, discipline area. We started acting like lawyers defending employees when they got in trouble or if they got um, uh, uh, fired from their jobs or whatever, we brought them back. And um, I never will forget uh, uh, the first actual real case that I had, uh, a guy by the name of um, uh, 
can't think of it right now. It'll come to me. But he was in charge of personnel. Um, and he would hear the cases and automatically, I mean, I've never seen anything like it, the way he ridiculed and humiliated the workers, even if they were right. So the first case I had was this young brother uh, who had gotten in some trouble, but it wasn't big enough for termination. And he, uh, uh, Jackson was his name, uh, uh, the per in charge of personnel. And he talked to the employee like he was a dog. And he didn't know me from Adam, but I intervened and, you know, went after him and asked him who the hell did he think he was to talk to us like that. He got scared. He jumped back. He didn't know what to expect. And I fired all, all, all up in him. And so we won the case. I went back to work and he called me back to his office and he apologized because he said he didn't know uh, why we were there, what we were there for, et cetera, except, you know, to organize the union. So we got immediate respect after that. And um, so for the next probably two years, we were organizing uh, the workers, getting cards signed and whatnot. Um, I moved from patient care assistant to the ER. Um, and I was working in the ER as, as, as one of the um, people that collected money. So my job changed, I got a little bit more money, but my cause remained. You wouldn't believe that they had a particular uh, um, one of the uh, police officers to stand in my office, keep an eye on me all night long, especially when I started working at night. And um, I knew the rules. So what I would um, tell them, come on, go with me. I'm getting ready to go get some cards signed. That was the thing they were trying to, but I did it on my, on, on my uh, lunch break as well as on my breaks. So I could do that, you know, and um, I got fired about three times and three times they had to uh, uh, bring me back. But um, I, um, I didn't know a damn thing about labor, <laughs> but I learned on the job and uh, uh, I became the business agent of the union and negotiated a particular contract, which was one of the best ones that we ever got. That was a hell of an experience. And um, uh, it was so empowering because um, the, uh, um, I'm fighting against all of management, big lawyers, et cetera, on the other side. And there were some wonderful breaks that I got that was very helpful. But as a rule, we were, in fact, um, um, negotiating, excuse me one minute. We were negotiating and uh, I didn't know a damn thing about negotiation. 
as far as uh, negotiating a, a uh, labor contract, but the workers taught me. They had the experience. And I listened to them, like for instance, I was trying to be um, kind of bougie in my negotiations at first. And they pulled me aside and said, um, look, if we're gonna get anything, you're gonna have to get a lot tougher than what you are. So the next morning I went in cussing everybody out. And um, they said, that's what you gotta do. And um, I did it and we were on then. And um, so it was, it, it was a good experience for me. Um, I had not had uh, experiences like that, but uh, we were winning. And, um, and a lot of the administration uh, actually wanted us to win. You know, so um, they would call me, give me information, and um, I could assure them that I would not expose them nor expose what we got because that was information for us. Yeah. You know. Um, I want you to uh, talk about your international involvement. How did it grow to uh, Pan-Africanism being involved uh, in um, in helping not just via ministry, but just social justice on an international level. How did you get involved in that at that at that level of literally traveling the globe several times over yeah. fighting for social justice? I had well let me let me just share this with you. Um because I, I, I think it was kind of providential. I told you I lived on a street called Fail Street in South Bronx. Yeah. And um, I hated that community. I hated that street. It was embarrassing. I wanted more. So one day I stood up under Fell Street sign and I asked the Lord to get me the hell out of here. I said, I uh, don't want to die here. I don't want to be confined to this place. Get me out of here. Um, I must have been about 16. 17 or 18, my church sent me to the Baptist World Alliance Youth Conference in Bern, Switzerland. I stopped in uh, London for a couple of days, then Paris, and then um, Switzerland for about five days, and then moved on from there to Italy. That was the beginning of my international travel and experience. God had answered my prayer. Um, and then when I got to uh, Shaw, as I mentioned, I got into uh, uh, affiliated with um, uh, Malcolm X Liberation University. And um, there was a book in a bookstore on the campus that kept calling my name before I read it. And a long time went by and I had not read it. Then one day, um, I decided to buy the book and read it, Dusk of Dawn by W.E.B. Du Bois. Yes, that yes. consolidated for me my international perspective. And um, then I started reading everything by Du Bois, uh, Frederick Douglass, and, and, and so many more. And then I got into uh, the international struggle reading Nkrumah, 
Um, um, and that was important because he was so close and affiliated with W.E.B., but the E.B., the boys who started the Pan-African conferences. And so I was following that. I became a part of that. And we were working on Pan-Africanism on this end um, while supporting the liberation struggles in Africa, as I mentioned earlier. Um, when the, um, when the uh, Sixth Pan-African Conference occurred, I, that was my first trip to Africa. And I went to the uh, Sixth Pan-African Conference and I told you what that was like. Um, so now I, I, I got a wonderful taste of internationalism. And uh, um, even when I was at my uh, small church in Wendell, um, I introduced them to um, the Baptist World Alliance. And my little church sent me and a couple other delegates to the Baptist World Alliance in um, uh, Canada, in Toronto. So I never stopped after that, you know. When I got to North Carolina, um, I met uh, uh, Tyrone Pitts, who invited me to become a part of the, um, uh, uh, what is it, um, the um, Justice uh, uh, Working Group uh, uh, of the National Council of Churches. We covered the America. I just, um, maybe I've been at Emmanuel about a year or two when I got involved there. Then I associated with the um, World Council of Churches. That wasn't far-fetched for me because my home church in Harlem had been affiliated with the National Council of Churches, World Council of Churches, and the Baptist World Alliance. So I was familiar with that and was willing and able to get involved and get my church involved because um, a lot of the churches were involved, the big churches anyway, and, and the ones that had national leaders. So I was able to follow their example as far as um, the international struggle. So um, that's how I met um, uh, Bishop Tutu and um, uh, Bosak. Um, and, and so many others. And then um, my affiliation with the National Council of Churches, there was a delegation that was in America uh, from the uh, All Africa Conference of Churches. And I had always been complaining whenever special guests come, they either go to Atlanta, New York, Chicago, or LA. And I said, you'll miss the South which needed this kind of exposure as well as uh, uh, be able to build relationships with. And so uh, when the delegation came, Tyrone Pitts arranged for them to come through North Carolina and we hosted them for several days. And then I traveled with them back to New York um, and they were so impressed uh, with our church and with our ministry and with me they extended an invitation later, the next year, in fact, to uh, come to their board meeting, which was meeting in Madagascar, and they paid for it. 
Um, I was the first African-American pastor to um, uh, be invited to speak at their board meeting. And uh, so I flew to Kenya and then together we flew to Madagascar. Um, and I addressed that board and I actually did it from memory where I reviewed the whole history of Pan-Africanism as such and the role of the church in the midst of that. And, um, and we raised, I think our church did a thousand dollars because they were building a new um, headquarters in Nairobi. And I wanted us to be a part of that, uh, which we did. And um, so we built a close relationship with the All Africa Conference of Churches. And, um, and we got, I was able to get more of the black church involved in that um, here because it was important that we build those relationships, churches in the Caribbean and churches in Africa. And white missionaries had screwed up so many of these churches and what have you, uh, that it was literally ridiculous. Um, but uh, many of the churches sort of um, separated from that and embraced liberation theology. And also at that time, the Black Theology Project was organized and uh, people like me, Tyrone, um, Jeremiah Wright uh, and uh, James Cone and many of the womenist, black womenist uh, theologian worked, started working together. So that sort of shaped the uh, direction for black churches um, who embraced liberation um, in this country. And um, so that was, you know, very powerful, but um, because of my affiliation, my church supported it, and um, uh, sometimes I got tickets, um, you know, from World Council and the National Council, and other times the church uh, supported me. But it was it it was it was a wonderful time, and I really miss that now more than anything because we don't have that kind of power and influence like we used to have. I want to talk about um, something you're currently involved in where you were at um, uh, uh, a couple of the, well, yesterday with the, with, the mar- with the march and protest. But I want to talk about it. Can you give sort of a spiritual uh, perspective of where things are, considering your background, your vast background, your experiences, the things you've been involved in? Where do you see where we are now? What is sort of the zeitgeist of the time? And and that may be two different questions, but if you kind of, you know, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, that period I was just talking about where people like James Cone, um, uh, Kane Hopefelder, Jeremiah Wright, and um, Ivor Carruthers and, 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 and a lot of the women who were involved in this movement and, and, and struggle. Um, we had broken through following particularly James Cone and the influence he had literally on the world. Um, 
we broke through a lot of barriers in 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 relationship to that and um eventually um like a lot of well let me put it this way when ronald reagan became president um uh what's his name um the racist senator from north carolina um jesse helms jesse helms and and a number of people came together with a plan nobody had ever heard of um of uh, Jerry Farwell and all these people, but they all came together with a plan. And that was, Ronald Reagan stated, and, it, and, and it's in uh, the Christian Century Magazine long time ago, that we gotta make sure we don't have another Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. So the struggle was, and particularly to get Ronald Reagan elected, um, was an attack on the black church and the progressive white churches. And uh, Jesse Helms and all of them started majoring in uh, uh, telecommunications as such. And the next thing you know, uh, Fred Price pops up. And then um, after him, a number of other blacks, all of them have money names, Creflo Dollar and all of them. Um, and, uh, they started getting the front page, the exposure. Then they started co-oping our best gospel singers, Shirley Caesar and so many others. And the next thing you know, they get in on TV, all Roberts, uh, changed its format. It was almost like a Broadway play but that was to attract the people and to um, penetrate the black church. If somebody would have told me that the black church could be so vulnerable as to fall into all these traps, I never would have believed it, but that's what happened. And um, the whole thing was about uh, shutting out or isolating the black church, and particularly those of us who were engaged in liberation and who were radical. And it worked. It worked. Black folks started jumping into all of this, you know, stuff that white folk were preparing and organizing and what have you. And it took the fight, the protests, and all of that out of the black church. And um, and I remember, you know, there was a book that came out called Holy Terror um, around the same time I came to uh, Winston. And these two uh, people did uh, 7,000 miles of investigation on what was happening and put it in this book called Holy Terror. Another book that came out exposing the same thing was the new sub, uh, sub, submissives, I think it was. Um, but it was a plan on the part of the government. And they knew it would work because they did it in Africa, Latin America, and 
in um, uh, Asia with conservatism, conservatism as well as fundamentalism. And they, so, use, they politicized that and used that to co-op the black church. So when I'm looking at George Floyd and what happened to him, uh, when I'm looking at what happened with Breonna Taylor, and the, you mentioned earlier about trauma and the impact that those things have on the the community and seeing that being able to firsthand turn on your computer turn you know turn on your phone and be able to see the officers with their knee on his neck to be able to see this brother get shot several times in the back instantly and over and over and over do you see that as being something that has a traumatic impact on Black America and white America. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, but more so Black America because um, it's the kind of trauma that connects with previous trauma, you know, as such. And it's not only just psychologically, but it's also physical because the body, the body contains this trauma. And it affects our health as well as it affects um, how we feel, you know, as such. And it never seems to go away. And that's why I said that when we look at our communities and even our churches, we have not healed. And that's what sent me back to school, literally, to, um, to, to, to figure out how to address all of this and and deal with it and i had developed a program just before the, the uh, coronavirus hit and um and i have to put it on hold or figure out a way how to uh deal with it um in terms of the virtual you know as such but um it's something that i want to address and um and i will address one of the reasons why i um one among many reasons why I retired, um, so I could begin to deal with this issue of healing and deal with um, uh, the trauma. Well, without going too deep into it, uh, because I got to have you come back and talk more about it, but I do want us to touch on this. Um, when you say heal from this trauma, it kind of give everyone an idea of what that involves. What does that look like to heal from? Because as you mentioned, growing up and what you dealt with, those traumatic situations, and you didn't realize, really deal with it until you were uh, uh, older, 50, and 50 years old is when you dealt with it. So I can only imagine the some of the trauma that is going on now. So what does healing involve and what does that look like? Yeah, good, great, great question. Um, let me let me give you an example. Okay. Okay, um, and this may help. How I got into um, this, I was called by a teacher one day, one morning to come to her class and talk to these three young brothers who were acting out. 
disrupting the class. They were about 16 years old or so, but it was at least three of them. And um, I, I agreed to come. I didn't have anything to do that morning. And um, and on my way there, I'm thinking I'm either going to get cussed out, ignored, or maybe jumped on. <laughs> but when I got to the school and she introduced me to the two brothers, uh, three brothers, um, and I, I asked them if they didn't mind coming out with me and let's talk. And they, to my surprise, they were very courteous and wanted to talk. And uh, the only thing they wanted to know was I the same John Mendez that had helped Daryl Hunt. And I assured them that I was, and they were cool then. And, uh, but when we got out in about 15 minutes of talking, all three of them broke down and started crying. I said, what the hell is this? What's happening here? One brother said, I, my, my father's in jail, in prison, and I can't see him. Other one said, my mother's on crack and she doesn't spend any time with me. And the other brother said, I just want to join the uh, Crips so I could have a respectable uh, reputation. I immediately said, these guys ain't bad. They hurting. I don't know how to help them and nobody's listening to them. That's when I realized I'm pastoring a wounded church in the midst of a traumatized community and we are not healing. I don't know how to make them, how to help them to heal. That's why I went back to school and why I started studying a trauma as such. But part of the healing and this is since then, it's getting people to know and realize first of all, they're traumatized. That's why you mentioned, I mentioned earlier about so much trauma is unconscious because it does control our behavior for better, for worse, most of the times for worse. The second thing is that it was important for us to talk about it. That's why we call it the talking cure as such. And um, uh, for people to tell their stories, which was part of the uh, organization that I was working on and, and the program that I was working on. Um, the third thing um, was to get people connected where they could talk to each other and to be relational. Um, and, and, um, and there are a number of other things, but to use music, to use the arts and all of that to address the issue of trauma. And I figured out a program on how to do all of that um, and to help people uh, to heal. You know, part of it is not just remembering, but the other part of it is being able to address it and talk about it. And, um, and I have had some good experiences as it relates to that, but I don't care where we are across this country, we all live with some kind of existential trauma. I, I, I like that. Uh, and you definitely got to come back to, to talk more about that. It, that's, I'm, I'm excited because I, I do see the trauma 
Uh, I feel like it's some trauma. I, I know it's trauma I've had to deal with from that. Uh, right. And I don't know of anyone, I almost, I can go out on a limb. I feel comfortable saying that if you're black in, in, in America and you say you have not dealt with trauma, the fact that you say you haven't dealt with it is a sign that you don't know that you're dealing with trauma. That right. Is, and it, most of us haven't dealt with it. Yeah. You know, and I think we don't know how. And, and we and right. You're absolutely right. So I'm not blaming anybody yeah. uh, for it as such, but um just recognizing that it's it's a problem we have to address because trauma gives a rise to trauma. Yeah. The the last thing I wanna uh talk to you about is um, the the other day, uh, you were in the uh, front page of the newspaper, uh, oh, yeah. having remarks at a at a protest recently, and one of the things I loved about it is particularly reading the article and then also knowing the type of person that you are. While you were uh, speaking there, you were also embracing the movement of now you weren't there beating anyone over the head saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is how we used to do it. You were, you've always had this knack of embracing the energy of the young people. And that's what I've seen from you kind of just, if you could kind of talk about how you've been able to do that throughout the years and staying not just relevant, but vital to to black America and really on an international level. Oftentimes we just, you know, isolate ourselves and think in the context of black America or America, but your impact, how have you been able, what is it that you have this, this thing that helps you to continue to stay vital and connected even as the generations go forward? Yeah. Um, my major in college was philosophy. And but in, in, in a real sense, by studying um, Marx, dialectical and historical materialism on the one hand, but um, I couldn't give up my God. So it also um, led me to study or embrace Alfred North Whitehead process philosophy, which in essence, says that life is a process of always becoming. There's no such thing as anything being final, finished, or fixed. And because of, of, of um, history as moving on, Frantz Fanon, I think, said it best, that each generation must uh, realize its own uh, destiny, and it must either fulfill it or betray it. So being a process thinker, um, the only thing permanent is change. You can't step in the same river twice, as uh, Heraclitus once said. So recognizing that, I know history didn't stop with me. It didn't stop with Dr. King or whatever. We try to fulfill our mission in that moment 
but don't think for a second history is going to stay there. So I recognize that, um, and was, and I said it yesterday, that I'm very proud of the young people, um, that and what they have done across this country over the last three or four months, and whatnot. They have to do it their way, and how they organize is radically different than how we organize because they understand the internet. They understand um, how to use, you know. Uh, Facebook and all of that. I don't know that. <laughs> you know, I'm not ashamed to say that, but I got to look for them, to them, to help me to get through this whole age of technology as such. But when it comes to organizing, they, they're able to do what we can't do. Yeah. And you... my role, I feel, is to support them and to help them wherever I can. But as I was telling uh, Kim and a lot of other people yesterday that um, I'm following them now. They are my leaders. I appreciate, you know, all the attention and the um, um, how people rep, uh, recognize me for what I had done and whatnot, but I don't want them to think I'm outside of the movement. It didn't finish with me, but it's gonna continue with them and others after them. I was glad to see all those high school and college students out there yesterday. You know, um, they make me feel old, but that's okay. I'm getting old, you know, but um, there's, there's a lot they can learn from me and Larry and a lot of other of us that that were involved in struggles and and the, and I think the key thing now is that we got to push towards change and negotiations to make these people keep their promises that they have made we got to um, change the culture of, of police but also the culture of the judicial system uh, we got the highest rate of imprisonment than any other industrial country in the world. We got more deaths than any other um, uh, industrialized country in the world. So we got to be able to identify and narrow down two or three primary issues that we got to address and change. And we can do it. We can do it. Well, I, I really appreciate that uh, you taking the time to uh, come on, but uh, I, I appreciate you for being one of my interventions uh, along my journey in life. Um, and uh, I'm glad that you're still in the struggle. You never left. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and I'm just glad that you're still out there. And oftentimes what happens is you, you start, you see people have these generational arguments. Well, you know, my generation did this and you guys generate. And one of the things I really appreciate is that you're not doing that. You're giving the wisdom and insight, but the for you to still be involved and for the youth to know who you are and to still make sure you're a part of it. To me, I think it shows your pure dedication and 
just the the organic activism and the things that you've done that have reached and touched people that they still generations after still want to connect with you somehow. So one last question, what do you, where do you see your legacy? Uh, I have no idea to tell you the truth. <laughs> I, I really, I really don't know. I just do what I feel like I need to do and, um, and, and move on. Uh, but legacy, I, I don't know. I don't know how to even think about that. Tell you the truth. Um, I feel blessed already in terms of how you described it, uh, that people still want to connect. Um, I guess the main thing I want people to know is that um, I was for real. I was authentic all the way. Um, and I took the struggle really serious. And I lived uh, for fundamental change that would make life better for everybody, mainly for oppressed people. I didn't talk that much about oppression, but I live and die for the oppressed. Wow. That, that's what that's, I live and die for. That, that's, that's big. Well, I can tell you a uh, true story about, you want to talk about your legacy. True story. So, uh, it, uh, the first time I met you, I remember I told some people I was coming to meet you and they were like, look, don't play. He does not play around. Have your shit together, whatever, you, whatever it is, have it together when you meet him. Don't go playing or he will chew you and spit you out and send you on your way. I, I never knew that. <laughs> I never knew that. Yeah. You didn't notice the cushion on your couch had been crumpled up from where I was so nervous just sitting there like don't blow it. Don't blow nah. it. But it's uh again I, I appreciate you and all that you've done and the international impact that that you have had in in moving this process forward. Uh, again, I got to get you to come back because I want to talk more about oppression and about the trauma and the healing process and to talk more about your program uh, just to, you know, so people can have some insight and some direction and know uh, what you're working on. Um, any, I, any final thoughts? I really thoughts appreciate it. I appreciate it, man. Yep. And, and, and I want to share with you what the wolf means within Native American uh, culture and religion. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I like that, yeah. Well, that's, and that's another thing I would love to have you uh, come back and spend some time on is just that connection that uh, the history of Africans and, and Native Americans and, and, and even from a spiritual perspective uh, and really talk more about that. I would love to uh, have a conversation with Winsler about that as well. Have him come on and talk about yeah. what they what what that struggle has been, and and to shed some light on that because again, it never stopped. That's a right. lot of people think that okay, Trail of Tears and some other things, broken treaties. That's no. It it <laughs> the thing is the oppression never really stopped. It just may have changed a different form, but it, it's always it's always been there. Uh, but again, appreciate you coming uh, and spending some time talking. Uh, hope things are going well. And uh, look, you, you take care and be safe. Thank you. And I appreciate you inviting me.